Hi, I'm Morgan Eikens here, the tech and healthcare reporter for the Baltimore Business Journal, and welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Pivot. My guest on the podcast this month is Ernst Valerie, managing partner at SAA EBI Development, the firm behind projects like the rehab of the Professional Arts Building in Mount Vernon, which now holds 96 apartments, and the redevelopment of the former Chesapeake restaurant on Charles Street into new mixed-use retail and residential spaces. Through his work, Ernst aims to revitalize urban neighborhoods and invest in communities and people that other developers might deem too risky. He feels strongly about the power and responsibility of development to transform properties in ways that are sustainable and inclusive. In Baltimore, some of his projects can be seen in Park Heights, Station North, and Pigtown. His firm has also done work in cities like Philadelphia, Boston, and Washington, D.C. In this episode of The Pivot, I talk with Ernst about some of the most transformative projects he has been involved with locally, including the Nelson Cole Apartment Project in Station North and the St. Michael's Church near Patterson Park, which he's currently turning into a brew pub. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check out previous episodes of The Pivot on SoundCloud. Okay, so we're here with Ernst Valerie, the managing partner of SAA EVI Development. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So typically this podcast is kind of about personal pivots, um, people who were in one career path and did something else or had to pivot their company in some way. But with you, I wanted to talk more about kind of how the work you're doing is pivoting properties or neighborhoods. To start, I was hoping you could kind of give us a little background, though, just about how you ended up where you are right now. So I think um, my entire sort of career has been kind of a pivot because um, I still haven't had a job, right? So (laughs) I'm still looking for that perfect job. And until I find it, we're just going to keep doing things that we think make sense and things that we think have an impact, a positive impact. And the word impact is thrown around so much. we really try to have meaning in that word. Um, I started out uh, thinking I wanted to be an architect. So at 15, I uh, interned for an architect in my town and I thought that's what I wanted. I applied to architecture schools and when I got there, um, it was clear that you know architecture is, is about making beautiful things, but then uh, uh, urban planning uh, caught my interest because it was about people, it was about kind of all these things that kind of make up a city. And it was almost like, you know, uh, getting to live out the entire SimCity experience. Um, You're not just doing the physical, the beautiful things that architecture does. Um, You know, architecture was described to me as uplifting the human spirit. But then how do you do that if uh, you don't really look into all the, the other pieces? And so urban planning really caught my interest. And I went into urban planning studied it, loved it, Um, and then towards the end of my schooling, um, I realized that the shortcoming of urban planning was that planners don't like to look at numbers, right? So planners put together these wonderful plans and they get the politics, they get the transportation. However, uh, how do they actually execute it? And planners typically work for like a planning department or um, or they work for a private firm. And either case, um, when you work for a planning department, policy and politics kind of, um, you know, take precedence. And so 
I got into uh, public policy next. So I went from an undergraduate degree in planning, and I thought, okay, policy was what I was going to you know, have the, the power mm-hmm. to uh, kind of set the stage and get things done. And then you get into policy, and public policy in particular, and you realize it takes a long time for policies to get in place. And then when you get in place, who enforces it? So that, that didn't work out. Um, and I'm kind of impatient. I want to see things happening faster than uh, typical. I got into development because um, I was trying to escape and go do some PhD. And my mom was like, no, no, we, we get it. You're really smart. But now you have to do something. And she actually was the one that you know, encouraged me to find a city go and make a difference and so I went to Philadelphia and uh, I used my urban planning powers for evil. I described that period in my life where you know I wanted to kind of make money being an immigrant and you know wanting to kind of give back to like my family and I started flipping um, row houses in South Philly and I, I picked a neighborhood that made sense as an urban planner and I picked buildings that made sense that an architect would say this, this is like, you know, striking and you could transform this, you know, and make it a beautiful block. And we had this block strategy. We went into vacant blocks in Philly and we completely changed them because it made sense because they were close to like Southwest Center Cities and the bus routes made sense. Everything made sense from a planning point of view, but no one was investing in those neighborhoods. And then you start to figure out why people call certain things risky. Things are called risky not because they don't make sense. Things are called risky because there are certain people that are there that our society doesn't want to invest in. It's not inherently because a neighborhood is bad, because it doesn't have beautiful homes. West Baltimore is a perfect example of that. You go around Lafayette Square or Harlem Park and you see some of the most beautiful homes that you'll ever see. Mm-hmm. And they are vacant, they are falling apart, and no one is investing in those neighborhoods. And then you go to Fells Point or Upper Fells Point and you see these tiny little things and they're worth so much. And so, you know, risk is associated with people we don't want to invest in. And until we say that all people are worth it, we're always going to have this dichotomy and we're always going to have this uneven investment. And so, you know, I kind of, going back on track to your question, (laughs) um, I I went to real estate development because I felt that I could put it all together. After that experience of, you know, flipping some homes in South Philly, I wanted more. I didn't want to just flip anymore. I wanted to have, you know, more impact. And so I wanted to learn from a lot of folks. And I was at a ULI conference and... um, San Francisco, and I met Otis Raleigh, and, you know, we liked him. He was at a table, and it was just him talking about Baltimore, and I had never been to Baltimore at the time, and, you know, we were kind of, you know, talking to him. We enjoyed having a conversation with him, and he convinced me to come to Baltimore, and I came, and um, after I finished my graduate program in real estate, my whole goal was to go back to Philly and then make it back to New York. That was my Rome, right? You, you know, and I, I grew up in New York, so I wanted to go back and kind of build my company in Philly and come back uh, to New York and do development. 
So that chance meeting with Otis really kind of changed everything because he told me about Baltimore. He was so passionate about it. And what I liked was uh, all these tables at ULI had multiple people and fancy things. And this is just one guy just talking passionately about a city. And so it, it compelled me to come and I came and I saw what he meant. I had never seen so many neighborhoods in one city mm -hmm. uh, and all have its own identity and my character and the people really cared. It really made me um, think, okay, Baltimore could, could be something interesting for me and my family. And so we moved here and we started working almost right away. Um, and we didn't start working in these neighborhoods that everyone wanted to be in, uh, everyone thought weren't risky. Mm -hmm. We went into some of the places that we thought made sense, but people really thought they were risky. One of the first neighborhoods we went into um, was Station North. And at the time when we got here in like 2006, 2007, uh, there were lots of vacants in that neighborhood. And it didn't make sense to me. The urban planner in me, the uh, real estate developer, the policy person in me saw Penn Station and I saw the Mark train and I saw Amtrak and I saw these beautiful homes and I'm like, why aren't people living here? And so we, we really pushed hard to um, be part of everything that was going on in that, that neighborhood. I really used... Um, sort of all these skills that I had and I really poured it into Baltimore and we've been working ever since. And we're gonna talk about Station North, but first I wanted to touch a little bit more on the concept of vacant homes and things like that. Um, I know you are involved in some of the work going on in Park Heights. Tell me a little bit about how you transform vacant homes and make them livable again. That's a big problem we have here in Baltimore. You know, there's thousands of vacant homes in the city and people don't really know what to do with them. It seems like an untackleable problem. Yeah, I mean, part of starting it is having great partnerships. And so you can never really do it alone. And so what we've learned is we've got great partners in this city, whether it's uh, DHCD, the housing department that that's being led by uh, Michael Braverman, whether it's uh, BDC that was led by Bill Cole and, uh, and all the wonderful people that work at these places. You need them as partners. And then, you know, you need the, the neighborhood, the, the people in the neighborhood, the community associations, and you wanna make sure that those associations really represent the people in those neighborhoods because, you know, my, my first major project in Baltimore was uh, the professional arts building. We converted that in, from an office building to 96 apartments. And the ground floor, I, I, I spent months and months trying to convince my wife to do something with me and she finally said yes. And that was the first Milk and Honey. Uh, we had friends in Philly who had started Milk and Honey. And so we started the first Baltimore Milk and Honey on the ground floor. And that was very transformative for Mount Vernon. Uh, and so what I learned about community associations, Mount Vernon has really like five people that are the community association and they kind of say they represent the entire neighborhood. And, um, you know, in and, and, and fairness, they, they really don't. And so it was challenging. Uh, when we get into a neighborhood, we really want to understand that the people want us there. Uh, because we're there for them where you know we see development as a service industry as opposed to like the top of the food chain uh, we're there to serve the community and, and be part of uh, helping move it forward our entire approach and our entire um, way we see 
the career or the path is that we need to change it. We need to kind of have a paradigm shift where development is about caring people that want to advance neighborhoods, that want to advance people. It starts with getting all the stakeholders in one room, however uncomfortable that may be, uh, and, and deciding that they're going to do something not just for people they want to attract to those neighborhoods, but in particular for people who have been there, who have suffered through all the blight. You know, having to live in these type of environments of non-investment, uh, that's one of the most damaging things. So you say there's thousands of vacants in Baltimore, but then there's thousands of people that could be homeowners in Baltimore. On Park Heights, we've heard so much discussion around Pimlico, and I wanted to talk to you about how crucial you think Pimlico redevelopment and keeping Preakness in the city is to the health of that neighborhood long term and what is the significance of Pimlico to that neighborhood and all of the development that's planned there? So, you know, I go I go back and forth, you know, if, if someone doesn't want to be with you, it's okay, let them go and like, you know, move on with life. I, I look at the situation in that lens sometimes. Uh, we want to have a city of all people that want to be here. But then you look at it from another lens, it's like, okay, uh, we don't want to be here, but we're going to take your taxpayer dollars to go be somewhere else. That's the part that doesn't make any sense. The whole state of Maryland needs to realize that in order for it to be a great state, it needs to have a great city. And Baltimore is that city. I think part of what's happening is people aren't conscious about how important this city is to the life and to the profile of this entire state. The suburbs don't survive without strong cities. And, and they don't get that. They think they will survive despite of Baltimore. They think they will survive if they kick dirt in Baltimore's face. But it's almost like they, it's, it's a self-inflicted wound. And so the entire Pimlico thing goes to that. It's like if the entire state wants to take our collective taxpayer dollars to continue to destroy Baltimore City, it will come back to haunt them. And so I wanted to jump back to Nelson Cole as well. Um, you mentioned Station North and kind of getting in early on, on what's been happening there. And now there's a ton of development going on in Station North and it's really becoming kind of one of those hot neighborhoods that people are talking about. What was it about that area that seemed special to you? Um, you mentioned, you know, being right by the train station and all of that. But then what's the process of getting people to kind of come on board with the idea of really bringing more life to that neighborhood? So, you know, as a, as a planner and someone that tries to be as logical uh, as possible, you look at sort of like the hard assets, and, and that train station was a hard asset. Its proximity to Mount Vernon, uh, at the end of the day, Mount Vernon was a strong neighborhood, and it was right across the street from it. And then there were two academic institutions in Station North, or close by to Station North, UB is right at the gateway to Station North, and then they built a law school right there because they saw the, the strength of um, that train station as well. And that law school was something really just for this city, and now it's sort of regional. People from Pennsylvania, people from you know West Virginia and things like that are coming to, to that place. And then Micah just a stone throw from uh, Station North, and because Micah was a, uh, is, in art school, their students are really attracted to 
that lifestyle and station north and they're all about the the artist's life and so when you look at all these things and then you you meet people one of the uh, reasons i wanted to be in station north is because there are people like michael Schechter running around his family and, and, and him um longtime landowners and building owners in station north and they really believed in the artist community and to meet Michael, and this was someone that I felt that I could have a conversation with, shake his hand, and believe that he's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. And those are rare people. Uh, I wanted to build on the things that he had done. And then, you know, at the time, Joe McNeely was running uh, the Central Baltimore Association organization there. And every year he would bring together all the developers and all the community members and talk about all the things that were happening. And I felt like there was a certain level of transparency. Most of the time, developers want to be very secretive about what they're doing. And to me, um, all these ideas, all it belongs to all of us. And the more people that could be doing it, the better. And so Joe McNeely created that kind of... Um, attitude, that kind of uh, community there where everyone was free to share what they were doing. And from that, there was like strength in numbers because you understood what Jubilee was going to be doing and what we could be doing. And then you could see how you could knit it all together. Mm -hmm. And then uh, DHCD was really key about communicating its priorities, you know, where, you know, Charles Street's a major corridor that they wanted to invest in, but not just Charles Street, they also wanted to invest on, on Green Mount and North Avenue. And so by understanding those priorities, we were really able to kind of make this, you know, knit this quilt together. And so I feel that, you know, Station North is what it is today because we all were open and transparent and willing to work together and so what's the next Station North? Is there a neighborhood that you think could have a similar trajectory where there's kind of all of these people coming together to knit together that quilt that you talked about? I, I, you know, I think all of Baltimore's neighborhoods have that potential. You know, I, don't, I, I can't tell you what's next. I can tell you the neighborhoods that we're working in. Uh, we're working in Pigtown. We're set to open our first milk and honey there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting the Walters bathhouse along with the firehouse. It's it's beautiful, and I think that's something beautiful that we can uh, contribute to that neighborhood. Um, we're in Johnson Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel that Johnson Square is a similar, uh, physically similar to um, Bolton Hill in terms of proximity to Mount Vernon and uh, Station North and the train station. Myself and my business partner, we met uh, as graduate students. We went back to the leadership uh, at Columbia and we helped convince them to come and create a lab. And they made a commitment for the next three years to work with us in Johnson Square to renovate properties um, with the students and alumni. Uh, potentially investing. We're also in uh, Washington Hill neighborhood, which is next to Upper Fells Point. Uh, one of the things we're doing there is we're building a, a brewery. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be brewing out we're of the old St. Michael's. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but we, we're doing it a, a little bit different. Uh, we see this as an emerging uh, economy. And part of that is how do we connect our young kids that are not connected to this, to that emerging economy. So one big part of Ministry of Brewing is 
basically a training program, an apprenticeship program from kids coming out of some of the most affected, impacted, negatively impacted zip codes in Baltimore City and connecting them to an industry that we think we're just at the beginning of uh, its its launch. Yeah, I think we've already kind of seen, especially in the last few years, brewing really kind of take on a life of its own and, and grow up in Baltimore, which has been really cool to see. And I wanted to talk more about that project uh, at St. Michael's, because one of the other trends that we've seen is people turning churches, redeveloping churches, into different things. We've seen a few of them, I think, made into apartments, a few of them made into like yoga studios, things like that. Why are these properties available? And why are so many people redeveloping churches now? Uh, I mean, the, the, the sim- simple answer is less people are going to church. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, and, and a more complicated answer is, uh, you know, a lot of these churches, they were built for sort of like opulence. They were, they were built to make you feel uh, small. You know, I had the opportunity in life to live in Italy, and I lived uh, in this little square called Piazza del Oro, and it's right across the Tiber River from the Vatican. So every morning I would wake up and I would go to the Vatican, and I would walk in there, and I would just feel like so small. Like I was always in awe. Like these places were built to make you feel that there was something bigger than yourself, and typically that takes a lot of money to maintain. And so you know that's the other part of the answer is they weren't. I don't know. I think Jesus would have built a simple place, <laughs> in my own personal opinion, and uh, people would have been able to maintain those long term. You know, a lot of the churches that are available now are, are just majestic, and I think that's one of the reasons people want to convert them is because they are majestic places. They are places that you can meditate and like really feel uh, part of a bigger thing. We're grateful to have the opportunity to uh, renovate. St. Michael's, and um, we are doing that in a very respectful way. We're working through the Maryland Historic Trust as well as the National Park Service to make sure that its historic beauty is preserved for the long term, for the next 40 years. So one of the things we want to do in our church is, you know, yes, the brew pub, but we also want to look at, you know, a cafe and co-working, things that also bring people together because those places and those spaces were meant to bring people together and that's why it makes sense for a yoga studio very spiritual and very kind of welcoming to all people and so are there any projects in baltimore that you think have been particularly impactful that you haven't been involved with or that you wish you had been involved with uh i think um the remington neighborhood i'm I'm a big fan of uh, tebow mannequin and his approach and his care for for the city and I think his project has been particularly impactful. And you know, the thing is, I didn't need to be involved because he was involved and I could be a fan. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm looking for more people to be fans of in Baltimore City and we're trying to you know, create a, an environment where there's plenty of developers that can do it. We're also working with Druid Heights CDC and one of the reasons why we decided to do that is because we, we kind of fell in love with the board members and with the staff there and we wanted to help build their capacity uh, and kind of help take him over the finish line on uh, several projects that they've been working on that they've actually uh, brought to fruition. But, you know, there's, the work's never done. There's long-term work that always needs to be done. And so, 
you know, we watched that from afar and now we're, we're part of that community, part of that family to help Druid Heights come back. You know, we're looking at that Penn North corridor and, and, and we really want to be, we want to be part of the team there. And then going back to Pimlico, um, we're looking to partner with different groups. Uh, we saw one of the very Kai, I think I'm saying it right. There's an organization there that's done a lot, and, and we'd love to partner with them. And we've been in conversations with them to partner and to really have a positive impact on that neighborhood. It's right next to the Silburn neighborhood, which is such a strong neighborhood. And then it's next to Sinai, and I think Sinai could be an amazing, amazing partner. You know, they could have more impact than I think Hopkins and Maryland have had. Um, and then, you know, whatever happens with, with the racetrack, it will happen. There's, there's so many neighborhoods, I can't, I can't name them all, and they need partners. And I, and I feel like these neighborhoods need to partner with people like Tebow Mannequin, with, with our company, and with others who want to take this development path, this whole entire notion of development without displacement. And I think um, if we follow that path, there's, there's no telling what we could do with the city. I know you talked about not wanting to talk about the negative things, but I feel like we can't have conversations with anyone working in the city right now without talking about the issues going on in city government and the mayor and kind of everything that's happened around that. I think one of Baltimore's historic problems has to do with leadership. There's always been these issues of strong leadership and finding strong leadership and trusting leadership and police, that's always been an issue as well, especially in the neighborhoods that we've talked about. What do you think about everything that's gone on and how does it affect the projects and the plan that people have for Baltimore? Does this kind of thing hold people back? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's definitely a distraction uh, and it's unfortunate that things have happened the way they've happened, but I look at some of the positives. Um, we have a city council president that was prepared to step into a difficult situation and he was the best that we could have asked for in that situation because he didn't take the opportunity to kick dirt into anyone's eye like he mm -hmm. kind of stayed above above the fray and and I think the city is, is fortunate right in, in a situation that could have been very political he put Baltimore first and I you know I also have to commend the mayor uh, because she put Baltimore first it's hard because these are all folks that I've worked with and that I've collaborated with and that I know believe in this city. But I also have to believe that, um, you know, everything has to kind of be done above board and um, the way that you do things matters, especially if, if you're in the, the public eye like that. And it definitely puts a black eye on the city, but we're used to kind of black eyes and you know, that's why I choose to focus on our, the response to all of that. And, and, and the thing is, uh, we've got some great elected officials in Baltimore City right now. You know, we've got a lot of new blood in city council. We've got really smart people that are leading our city. And um, beyond that, we've got to look at all our agencies. We've got to look at places like BDC. We've got to look at places like, you know, housing. I think we have one of the greatest... Um, uh, housing commissioners and we have people who care that you know there's there's tons of lawyers that have been working here for years you know title companies all these folks that are all about baltimore and so i want to focus on that and in terms of like 
you know, leadership, elected leadership, uh, you know, politics can be so dirty. And so we, 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 a lot of people shy away from politics because of that. And I think it's turning because, you know, so a lot of new people ran for office and won. Uh, and so we need to be hopeful uh, and, and give them a chance to, to govern. I don't know what the future brings. You know, we've got a primary election coming up in less than a year. And so we had to really think as a city, like what's best for Baltimore? Because this is a, a critical juncture. You know, we didn't break into a million little pieces. We're, we're more resilient uh, than that. The opportunity wasn't fully uh, brought to fruition under her leadership, but I think the right people are all in place. Yeah, I think if anything, Baltimore has proven time and time again that we're a pretty resilient people, so we'll see what happens next. Thank you so much for talking to me about all this. I appreciate it.